Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, Ben. Well, I'm really excited. We are doing section 45 today, and I've actually been really excited to get into this one because it's it's short. We're just doing the one section, but <laughs> we were talking earlier, and we're like, "Hey, maybe we can get this done, you know, a little bit shorter." And I'm like, "Nah, I, I think this is going to take <laughs> it's going to take a little while." There's so much here; it's so good. <laughs> it's been a while since we've done a single section. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a little while since we did a single section, but uh, but I'm super excited. But section 45, it was given in March 7th of 1831. It's given to to Joseph. And, you know, during this time, the saints are experiencing a little bit of persecution and per- and pushback that is, you know, it's normal for the for the region. It's normal for the time in the area that, you know, new churches spring up. They, get, they do get pushback. So I know a lot of our church narratives, we talk about, you know, the truth of the gospel is going forward and Satan is really pushing hard against it. And while that's true, and we don't want to downplay that, but it's also when we read other historical documents, we find out that other religions were starting at the same time and they were getting just as much, if not sometimes greater pushback themselves. So this is kind of a common theme. You always persecute the weirdos. You always persecute the weirdos. And right? sometimes even the even the normal people sometimes end up getting it, right? <laughs> If you get a lot of weirdos, then the normal people are the weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just finished up a book for uh, for one of my classes in religious studies, and it's called The Southern Cross by Christine Herrmann, and it talks about the evangelical movement going down into the South and how it took 70 to 100 years for the evangelical movement to really integrate into Southern culture and to actually get there. But for a good 70 years, they were highly persecuted and there was a lot of uh, clashing and pushback. And so there's a lot of stories that, you know, obviously they didn't have like a Missouri extermination order put out against them, but these kind of localized pushbacks and stories like that, or, you know, they are they are rather common. So, you know, the, the early Latter-day Saints definitely had their fair share. And at this particular point, they, you know, like we talked about in last week's episode and, and, and maybe even the week before then, you know, we've got to really try to put these early Latter-day Saints in context, because especially the ones in Kirtland, because they are so brand new to the gospel. And it's not like they have the internet to go through and to, to look over the whole lexicon of talks and you know, we, we have 200 years worth of talks, right? That we can go back through and mm-hmm. listen to and look at and doctrines and, and we can see the evolution of doctrines and we can get sucked into how, you know, Brigham Young was teaching one thing and then they didn't teach it after Brigham <laughs> Young. And, and, and so we get to grapple with, those are things we get to grapple with. But for these early Latter-day Saints, they just had the same belief traditions that they had had before. But now they have this new book called the Book of Mormon. You know, what is this thing? And how do we treat this thing? And can we even get a copy to read this thing? And so there's just so many questions that I'm sure they had and and just trying to figure out what baseline they're going to take to really getting a new identity of of what it means to be a Latter-day Saint. And we're going to see that this is really a big deal over the next several years. I mean, this 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 thing will go all the way through Joseph Smith's life. They're they're forging and reforging these identities. The church actually 
doesn't have a, a single name until 1838. Like we talked about uh, multiple episodes ago, that the church had gone through multiple names until 1838. I think they went through like six of them until we finally we get the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so identities are in flux. People are in flux. Everyone's just trying. It's kind of like nailing Jello to the wall and seeing what sticks. And it's just, it's, it's, it's really, it's really hard unless you're freezing that thing, right? And, uh, you know, but they don't have refrigeration. It's, it's just, it's, it's difficult. It, let's just put it that way. It's really difficult. But these revelations really serve to try to unify the people. And especially at this time, print culture is just coming into its own. We had had pamphlets and you know things like that like with Thomas Paine back in the in the revolution that sparked the revolution we know the power of the printing press this is now what 60 years later and they are on the frontier and the power of the printing press and the freedom of speech is a really big deal but now you're beginning to have religions that are taking a hold of having easier access to the printing press. And so for Joseph to print the Book of Commandments, for him to talk to Emma to, to make a, a book of hymns, to be able to have these things that they can disseminate. The Book of Mormon, they have several thousand copies you know, straight out the gate from, eight, from 1830. Just the time and the place of the print culture in the United States is a really big deal. And this is going to have a really strong unifying effect on the saints to be able to have this in hand, especially as the missionaries go out and they start talking to everyone. Because before they started to put together the Book of Commandments, they haven't quite started putting it together yet. And that's one of the difficulties here is because there's no narrative for them to unify around. There's no singular story for them to unify around. A lot of the things that we take for granted, like Jote the First Division right. and Peter, James, and John and the restoration of the priesthood and John the Baptist, you know, not even Sidney Rigdon really knew about this until, what, 1835? Yeah, these stories were not circulated at all, no, even if they, they were somewhat, even if they were written down in some way, they weren't circulated among the general membership of the church. So, so people didn't really know about the story of the first vision. They barely knew much about Moroni because we didn't have the whole Joseph Smith history about Moroni. He just, I think that first edition kind of gave a preface a little bit about how, you know, it got him from an angel, but it was very, very short explanation. So yeah, there's, there's not a lot of meat to this founding story narrative of the church. And um, so I, I think that's what's really interesting here about the heading of, of section 45. All these all these uh, rumors, they say, are, are circulating about the church and people are confused about really what is it that defines us as a people? You know, when we're seeing all these other religions going around and professing prophecies and revelations, what is it that defines us? That this theme of Millennialism and second coming of Christ is very, very important in American Christianity at this time. It's very front row center for members of the church, even before they joined. And so to see more and more of these revelations, you know, Joseph Smith's already gotten several, but then to get another one, you know, it's just like kid in a candy store for these kinds of things. They just eat it up, right? Anything that, that's going to talk about Christ coming again, it's just, you know, they're just going to eat it up. And so this revelation. He calls it to the joy of this of the saints. This is just something that further solidifies their narrative of him as a prophet, something they can rally around, something they can move forward with. So Yeah, and I really like that you brought up that point of millennialism and of Jesus Christ's second coming and of Zion. These are going to be major themes in section 45. For us, in kind of looking back on it, unless we're really studying the history and getting involved in it, sometimes we think that this was a unique conversation that just Joseph Smith was coming about and having this brand new conversation and nobody else. When we have to kind of put it in context, and, and, and I like that you brought that up, that 
this was a very common conversation that was going on. Millennialism, the end of days, Jesus coming again. This was this this has been a very popular Christian message, especially in in the north uh, the northeast. They're in in New York for many decades prior to Joseph Smith. This whole Second Great Awakening period that had happened, you know, from the late 1700s into early 1800s and into Joseph's day. In fact, Joseph is kind of the church is kind of at the tail end of this Second Great Awakening. They're not even on the front end of it. So. A lot of these narratives are going on. The Latter-day Saints are grasping a hold of these narratives. And I know that us living now 200 years later, we're seeing things in a completely different lens. Our social culture, our American culture, our religious culture, and, and even as we spread over into a world culture where these nar- these narratives may not have the same context to modern day readers as they had to them then, right. when we read these now without that same context, there's a propensity for us to think that, you know, this is supposed to happen right now. This is this is it right now. Well, the saints literally thought this was going to happen to them right then. Right. I mean, they were they were thinking it was going to happen days, weeks, months. Just putting in context of that that social atmosphere. But I love how s- several of these sections start out, especially the ones that are directly from the Lord. That are Joseph has a couple different ways of introducing these revelations, but I like the ones that start off where it's just it's the Lord. You know, he comes right out. Hearken, O ye people of my church, to whom the kingdom has been given. And I I love the kingdom kingdom talk you know <laughs> you know beatitude story stuff you're such a status show though i'm such a status <laughs> right this, <laughs> the you know this is a story of identity this is god giving his people identity where they don't have one before we've talked about we've about repentance and we're going to keep talking about repentance because restoration and repentance really in these contexts are almost synonymous because we're learning to see god differently and we have to keep in the proper context how they were trained to see God in their context. And then to realize how is this brand new for them? And then to recognize that, guess what? We might get to a place where we're revealed a nature of God going forward in the future that is as different to us as this was different to them. How amazing would that be? In this particular case, we're seeing that God is unfolding himself in a new way. And that's going to be really important as we, as we move along. But here in verse three, we have a common theme that we've talked about where the Lord says, listen to him who is the advocate with the father, who is pleading your case, your cause before him. Now, okay. So we've talked about this before, this whole advocate with the father. You know, I was having a, a conversation with, with, uh, with our neighbors who, who are members of the church as well. And, and so they, they come over quite often through, through the week. They're kind of in our, uh, what's it, your bubble? I don't know what you call your COVID bubble, you know, of whatever your friends that you kind of okay. quarantine yeah. with. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we, we get together as, uh, as family friends quite often. And, and we were talking about this and, and we're like, does it ever say advocate to the father, even in conference? And so my wife was looking it up on her phone and, she, and she's like, I don't, I can't find a single place where it says advocate to the father. Everything is advocate with the father. And that with the Father really does change, really does change this way that we commonly look at this. And I know, Ben, you have some stuff I, I, to talk about this, and I, it's really fascinating because it really gives a great step into what we're talking about. But when we go into here, into verse 4 and 5, this really causes us to question our interpretation of verse 3. Because if Christ is our advocate with the Father, who's pleading our cause before him, he's not pleading our cause to him. He's pleading our cause before him. 
saying, Father, behold the suffering and the death of him who did no sin, in whom thou wast well pleased. Behold the blood of thy Son which was shed, the blood of him who thou hast gavest, that thy thyself might be glorified. Wherefore, Father, spare these my brethren that believe on my name, that they may come unto me and have everlasting life. Now, especially in verse 5, spare them, spare them, my brethren that believe on my name, as if it's the Father that's the destroyer. Right. As if Jesus has to convince him, saying, look, I've done what I've needed to do, now spare them, because otherwise the Father is indecisive. His primary call would be to destroy us, but because of Christ, as the intermediary between us and the Father, that then Christ takes the blow of the Father. Now, the, and this comes back to some, some you know, I'm going to push back a little bit here against some of our church culture and some of the stories that we talk about. One of my one of my professors at BYU, um, Thomas Wayment, he taught uh, the New Testament. He had this thing that he called Mormonisms. And man, he was death on these Mormonisms. But these Mormonisms <laughs> he called were, these are things that stories, stories or tales or beliefs that have entered into Mormon culture that have absolutely no bearing in the gospel whatsoever. And so he was death on these things. And he, man, he had a whole library of these little things. And kind of taking up that mantle from, from you know, Dr. Wayment. He's he's much more knowledgeable than I am, so I'm going to do it in kind of my own little uh, my own little humble way. So you're saying he would bring these up in order to destroy them, or he would yeah, bring them it, up as as he he liked them? No, he would he would bring them up as a matter of 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 uh, debunking them, Debunk. as it were. Okay, and and to and to show that man, these Mormonisms they don't have any place here. There's no scriptural. But one of his things that he brought up was the the famous, and it's not so much popular anymore, but it's that whole. I never said it would be easy. I just said it'd be worth it. Oh, yeah. You know, this was a very popular thing, and it still is kind of, and I don't have any problem with anybody who who has this or promotes it, but Jesus never said that. He never said it would be, you know, that that phrase is never in the scriptures, and in fact, multiple places in the scriptures, it does say that the way is easy. So it's just, in his opinion, he had a really big problem with it. And me, I'm like... "Eh." Well, I get the sentiment behind it, but... uh, You get the the sentiment, but... There's not a whole lot of basis to it, yeah. Right. But uh, but moving on, we had this, you know, this idea here of Christ. One of the stories that we tell to try to illustrate the point here is uh, this story of of a, of a little boy who goes to a schoolhouse. And oh, he's I knew so you were po- going to tell this story. Man, this story bugs me. So, it, you know, this little boy comes in and all he has is like his coat, this big coat. He doesn't, and, he, and his family's so poor that he can't wear, he, he doesn't have a shirt. He just has his coat. And he comes in and, and the teacher tells everybody to take off their coat and he won't take off his coat because he didn't have anything underneath it, right? And so finally she tells him again and tells him again and says, finally, he has to come up to get his, to get some beatings if he doesn't take off his coat. And so he finally takes off his coat to realize he has no shirt on. So he goes up to the class, right? To get his beatings because he wasn't being obedient to the, to the, to the voice. And then, the strongest boy in the back of the class stands up and says, Miss, I'll take his beatings for him. And he walks up to the front of the class and he takes the whippings for the little boy. And the, the way the story is told, it, it's an emotional knee-jerk story. It sounds good. It's one of those spiritual Twinkies. But when we actually, when I when I started to really think about this as, as a teenager, even as a teenager, I started questioning this. And I started thinking- what the freak is wrong with that teacher? Yeah, that's what I've always wondered. I'm like, what heartless wrench of a teacher is doing this? It's like, who who cannot look with compassion and be a human being in that moment? You know, a, a human being, let alone a God full of mercy and compassion. And, and to be able to say, well, the law is the law and the rule is the rule. I'm like, according to who and what and what universal standard is causing that little boy to get whipped? 
And then to whip the bigger boy because the little boy didn't have it anyway. <laughs> so when we, when we have this idea that God is that teacher with a whip and that Christ is the one, that God's the one who whips Jesus. Now, this is a, this is just penal substitution atonement theory. Right. And then we have other atonement theories where that Satan is, you know, it's a redemption theory. You know, I, for, for those who may not know is there are multiple atonement theories. There's not just one concept of the atonement. There are multiple theories about the atonement. Even within Latter-day Saint, quote unquote, doctrine. Yeah. Yeah. Even within our own theology, there's been different yeah. proposed theories of it. I, I, someone just recently posted on my on one of my social media threads that had brought up the fact that Skousen that Cleon Skousen had promoted a version by I think Talmadge. No, it was Woodso. You know Woodso's version, which was more redemptive theory. But you know, there's there's six or seven different. Well, Skousen formal- he he wrote the uh, the meaning of the atonement. You read that right? And he goes mm-hmm. into like intelligences and and all that stuff. So yeah, there's lots of these different these different theories. Oh, on yeah, it. a lot of these different things. That that's just one that was on my radar in the last week. And and so because of that, we start to think, well, who's who's Christ paying the penalty to? Who's he paying it for? There's one theory that that Satan has basically a contract with our name on it, and so Christ has to pay the punishment to Satan to satisfy Satan, and that's more like a redemption theory, and that's kind of this kind of a, a little bit like what Woodso was talking about. Uh, it's just a lot of these things ha- are a lot of these atonement theories are highly problematic, and when we really start to think about them, we're like that just that doesn't quite set right. So when we when these these few verses, the reason why I'm taking so long on this is when it says, "Wherefore, Father, spare these my brethren." It's as if we have to be protected from the Father. Yeah. And that has never, th- that one thing has been more damaging to my personal discipleship in my life than probably any other thing. It's, it's definitely my top three. Some of the top three Mormonisms that have been very damaging in my relationship to God has been that way of looking at God. Yeah. And because I, I could not have inherent and absolute and total trust and fidelity to a God that would do that and who would be that way. I, to look at a God and to be able to say, I can't trust that God. I don't know if he's going to beat me today. I don't know if he's trying to destroy me today. I don't know if he's punishing me because of my wickedness today. And where's Jesus that he's not defending me against the Father, right? And that way of thinking, I, I just, I can't, I can't go that way anymore. It, it did not lead me to any good fruit. But when I look here and I see that Jesus Christ and the Father are on the same side, and I, it's like we stand out there in the middle, and we've talked about Satan before being the persecutor, not the persecutor, well, the persecutor too, but the prosecuting <laughs> attorney. And in, he's the accuser, right? Yeah. And so in, in, he's that person who's pointing us and is trying to tell us all the bad things we've done about ourselves and all the bad things we've done to ourselves and all the bad things we've done everywhere else. And Jesus is our advocate to the Father, with the Father. See, I'm even doing it now. Jesus <laughs> is our advocate with the Father. And it's like, we're the judge. And you can see Jesus there pleading and having like a sidebar with the Father, saying, Father, behold, I've I've suffered these things. Look, I've done everything necessary for, for Shiloh to come here, for Shiloh to be here. Can you do anything, Father? And when, when I thought about it in those terms, I was immediately brought to Gethsemane when Christ pled with the Father, if there be, if there be any other way. But if this has to be, then this has to be. And so in this way, I no longer see God the Father as the punisher, as the one who's punishing. I see them both there as an advocate trying to save me 
as the one sheep and desperately trying to convince me that I've always already been worthy. I just need to choose it and to learn to see who I really was. Because when God made me, when God made all of us, he said it was good. You know, I definitely like that way of framing and conceptualizing this this courtroom metaphor better. I think that it might be, natural might be the right word for us to, at some stage, conceptualize God as an angry, judgmental, punitive God, and that the way out of that is through Christ, because the way Christ can teach us, and he says, you come to the Father through me. You come to a knowledge of who the Father really is by coming to know me. And this false God that you've built up unto yourself, who is a punitive, vengeful, angry God, that God will melt away as you come to know me. And I see Christ here. This, you know, you said this kind of took you back to the Gethsemane experience. And, and I see that too as this sort of echoing that intercessory prayer where Christ models how we, what does Enos call it, wrestle before God, right? How we seek to align our will with the will of the Father, which is really everything you know, in our best interest, come to know who we truly are. I also see a, a little bit other way of looking at it, like you were saying, when Christ goes in and he says, is there no other way? Sometimes we we think of that as, as Christ asking the Father if it's possible that he not suffer that way. And I think that that is a valid way of looking at it. I think an additional thing on that to make it more profound is that there's also sort of that that question which is a universal question of life of, do I really have to experience suffering in order to understand what life's all about? You know, the answer to that is yes. That it's simply part of our existence and it it defines God's existence as well as ours. And that the good news of Christ is that because we are created in God's image, suffering doesn't have to destroy us and it doesn't have to you know necessarily you know define our entire experience but can give greater depth and meaning to to everything else that we do and and I think that's what that's part of at least of what uh, the atonement is about is modeling that for us Christ going and preparing that way before us so you know touching on these verses here I think that it just what you were saying, it's a very common way to view this metaphor as God being the judge. But I think that as we sort of gain a greater trust and understanding in our relationship with Christ, we also then naturally gain a trust and understanding in our relationship with the Father, because he says the Father and him are one. And so no longer do we ever need to even entertain the notion that the Father has any different feelings or intentions towards us than Christ himself. There's there's no difference of opinion about us there. Yeah. And, and, and that's what I liked, you know, when I said earlier, I think that's a great stepping stone. That no matter where we are at, if we if we do see a punitive God or a punitive father, that the process of relying upon our Savior who is our advocate brings us into that relationship with Christ where 
suddenly the nature of the Father comes into light. And then we're brought into that divine love where we do see that they are one. Going into verse 7, I, I, love the, I love it when he says, I am the light that shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. Yeah, I don't think I can hear that enough in Scripture. <laughs> I think that could pretty much be in every chapter, and I'd be okay with it. I'd, be like, I'd, I'd, just, I'd, I'd read it, and I'd be like, oh, yeah. Because there's so many things we can say about it, but I, I love our, I've loved our discussions about the true self, false self, that the light is the thing in which we are, that we are intelligence. We are light and truth. That is that is the core of our identity. That's that that is that is the entire metaphysical basic essence of our reality, of our makeup, of who and what we're made of. And everything that we see on the surface that is not that is our false self. It's the false perception of ourself. It's where the light shineth in the darkness. The light shineth in our true self, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. The light of Christ burns and is in everything. And it's only the darkness of the false self that doesn't see it. And, and I love that. I love that essence of light and truth being the basis of our creation, as opposed to, you know, these, the philosophies that we've had, you know, since the beginning that our corrupt stat, our corrupt state is that, that man's self is corrupted in as much as I, no, it's, it's just the perception. We're still there in the presence of God. We just need to learn how to repent and to see him differently, to be brought back into the presence of it. And that's where the beatitude conversation, the purity in heart and the face shall see the face of God, where we come back into that presence of, of what already is. You were talking earlier about how the context of, of this and the experience of the members of the church, these early members of the church, the religious traditions they're coming from, and how that informs their experience here in the church. and. And then the repentance process, and them coming to know God in a in a deeper, more more accurate way. I guess is the right way, um, more authentic <laughs> way, more personal way. I keep going back and referencing that um, that really iconic sermon. Is it uh, Edward Jonathan Edwards? Is that right? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Yeah, is that right? Okay, so, so yeah, Jonathan Edwards. Yeah. So the the reason that 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 I think really contextualizes this well and and I think it, it's a good like sort of primer on on American Christianity is because that is what so much of American Christianity grows out of now obviously it, it like comes into greater and you know more renewed or restored even understandings which is what this restoration is all about but but it does lay that background and context for this is how people are viewing God. And this is what they're coming out of, right? To to see God in in a new way, because in this in this um, sermon, so to you know that that Jonathan Edwards gives on sinners in the hands of an angry God, I mean, he just lays all out, you know, how how terrible and depraved we are, and and how God, by all rights, what he really should do is just completely wipe us out and destroy us, and that's really what should happen. Anyway, it's just, <laughs> it's pretty good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Jonathan Edwards is a lot of fun. He, you know, he comes from the 1700s and he's a, he's a congregationalist, which was, was really kind of just the evolution from the Puritans and, you know, the, the pilgrims. And they were this very, the very pious people as well. And that was very much indicative of how they saw things. And as that first, that first, uh, great awakening 
came into the American Revolution and came out of it, we saw some soft, you know, they still saw that kind of angry God thing, you know, with the evangelicals who came down with the Baptists and the Methodists and the Presbyterians there from the about, you know, 1800 to about 1830. They were having these these conversion moments because that evangelicalism, those those churches, their kind of their bent on things was that you needed to have an absolute conversion experience, something that you could actually grasp a hold of and tell you that this was your conversion experience because otherwise you had to recognize your absolute total depravity before God before then God would step in to save you, right? Yeah. And so they, that was their way to God was to recognize. And when I say depravity, I mean, you had to recognize that, you know, your body was just, it was just, it was, it was disgusting. It was, well, it's it was like bad. King Benjamin says, you're not even, you know, you're less than the dust of the earth. <laughs> yeah. C- kind of that, but in, in a little bit more, uh, kind of like negative way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. More, I read King more Benjamin self-deprecating and- way. Yeah. King Benjamin does say it in, in, in a, in a way that's like, Oddly inspiring. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, I read King Benjamin. I'm like, yeah, I'm not anything more than dust of the earth. That's kind of awesome. But when you, when I read like the ev- early evangelicals, I'm like, man, that's just depressing. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. There's something different about the tone for sure. Yeah. But, uh, you know, in verse 10, I love moving on in verse 10, uh, this idea of, you know, we've brought up over and over again about how God is. It's his work. He's been doing this and he just invites us along, right? We're just along for the ride. This is his show. This is his ride. This is what he's got going on. If we want to come into this, he'll call us into this and he'll let us come along, but this is his show. And so in verse 10, Jesus says, Wherefore come unto it, and with him that cometh I will reason as with men in the days of old, and I will show unto you my strong reasoning. Wherefore hearken ye together, and let me show unto you even my wisdom, the wisdom of him whom ye say is the God of Enoch and his brethren. Well, first off, I, I think this is fascinating. This God whom ye say is the God of Enoch. I don't know what that means. I don't, <laughs> I don't quite know what that means. <laughs> but but I think it's an interesting way to phrase that. But come unto me and I will be here with my strong reasoning. You know, the first vision we talked about, you know, when we talked about the first vision and in that episode, we talked about the difference between trying to reason with scripture and being brought into an experience with God. And about how the first vision, the power of the first vision was not necessary. It was not in all the logical axioms. It wasn't in all of the proofs of God's existence. It wasn't going through and trying to establish pure doctrine. It was God making himself manifest to man again. It was God bringing a 14 year old boy into an experience. And it's the experience that he had. That he says, I, I knew I had this experience. I knew that God knew I had this experience and I couldn't deny it. But yet, even then, God is still willing to reason with us. I love that. He will come into an experience with us if we want to be brought into an experience with him. But if reason is what we want, he'll meet us there too. I will reason with you like I did with the people of old. I've always been trying to show my children exactly who and what I am. And I'll be glad to do it here with you. If that's what you want, we can do that. We can have experiences. We can have a chat. I'll show you my strong reasoning. I've done it with people in the past. The people who you pinpoint in the scriptures and you say, hey, I'm that God right there. I will reason to you like what you thought I was reasoning with them. And and I love that. I love these scriptures for that. I, I, I love this uh, part about the... 
that it goes into with verse 12, where he talks about Zion, a city reserved until a day of righteousness shall come, a day which was sought for by all holy men, and they found it not because of wickedness and abominations. You know, I think this goes back a little bit to something you mentioned in a, at a previous, I don't know if it was last time or, or previous, where, you know, Zion really is available to us at any time that we so choose to live it. And Zion isn't waiting on Christ, so to speak. And I know this is going to be a little bit, little, po- little bit uh, too poetic, so it, it doesn't necessarily, I don't mean this literally, but you know, Zion isn't necessarily waiting on Christ. Christ is waiting on Zion, so to speak. And I don't know that, the, that that's necessarily the case, but what I mean is we can have Zion anytime we so choose. It's not like we have to wait for the second coming of Christ and then all of a sudden we can build it. We've talked about this several times. Everything here, the Lord has given us everything that we need in order to do it. Yeah, there was a, a podcast I listened to months and months ago. I mean, it's probably been a year now by Brian Zond. He, he's a he's a Christian leader and uh, and pastor, and and I love a lot of what he has to say. He there, there there's some there's something I disagree with everyone, and yeah, there's something everyone disagrees with me. But what he ended up having about uh, he had this podcast about the Book of Revelation. The way he was able to show how the book of Revelation was a political treatise and kind of like a a political uh, comedy, almost as it were, that was easily understood by the people who lived there, but not so much by us, and that it was never intended to be some kind of end of days, how, how, how can I say this, some end of days prophecy, like like the whole world is kind of making its way to the to this last end of days uh, fulfillment. But that this was, it's very archetypal, which means that it applies to every single generation living. That every single generation is repeating the truisms taught in the book of Revelation. Namely, is one of the ways that this was, uh, that the book of Revelation was a, uh, was a political satire was that, you know, he, he says, imagine if you will, 2000 years from now, if someone were, to, you know, the American empire has gone all the way of the earth and someone ends up finding in some kind of rubbish pile somewhere, a comic where there is a bald eagle. And in one hand, it's holding an elephant. And in the other hand, it's holding a donkey. And the eagle is saying, I've had enough of both of you. Now, in American politics, all we would have to see are those things right there, and we would totally get what's going on, right? Right. The, Mer- the American eagle there represents America. The elephants, the Republicans. The the, the donkeys, the Democrats. And the, and the United States people are saying, well, we've had enough of these two parties. If we were to see just that comic without any other reference, we would totally get it without any other explanation. But if you transport that comic 2,000 years from now into a different culture that has no idea the context of that, then... They're, they can make all sorts of really weird, wild extrapolations <laughs> as to what this means, right? Yeah. And so this is a lot of what we do with the book of Revelation. But there's a story there, for instance, where, you know, these monsters are coming about and then you have this little lamb who, who ends up, the sacrificial lamb who, who ends up bleeding and is sacrificed. And the lamb looks and, and, and the people are looking at the lamb and the people are looking at these giants and it's the lamb that defeats these monsters. And it's supposed to be a comedy that this lamb is the thing that defeats these things. And the lamb is, is obviously indicative of Jesus Christ, his doctrine, his church. And the monsters are all the kingdoms of the world, the kingdoms of the empires of man. And in, and, and so the message here is it's in context of Caesar in his day, but the end of days prophecy and the, and the idea is, is that every generation 
is the generation where Christ will come back. Every generation has the potentiality of being the generation. And we get to choose. And we're going to see later on in section 101 that God, by 18, I know, was it 1832, 1833, that he says by this time that he already enough has been given and is already sufficient. I think it's 10175 or 79 that for Zion to be redeemed, never again to be thrown down. If the churches who call themselves after his name simply followed his commandments. And so we realize that we already have all the tools sufficient to building Zion. So why don't we have it? And the answer is, we just don't want it. Right. And that's, and, and that's a harsh statement, but that's really where it boils down to. We really just don't want it. And when we try to go look for it, our culture kind of informs us that the way to go about doing that is to make sure that we are obeying all of the checklists in a way that if we do enough checklists, then God will reward us with the blessings attached to the checklist. And so we've created this kind of gospel of a checklist gospel, I've called it before, of, of a, and we've imagined for ourselves a conditional God, a God that rewards us conditionally. He loves us conditionally, he rewards us conditionally, and he's only there for us while we're doing what he says. But we never are really brought into this moment in relationship with him where we have an unconditionally loving God who is always there with us, showing us that he's there with us. And so this generation just doesn't want it. And that's, and that's fine. It'll go on to the next generation and the next and the next until there's a generation that does. Right. Yeah. It's offered to every generation. I definitely see that. You know, uh, he starts getting into a lot of the signs of his coming here. Maybe you have some things to say before this, but I'm, I'm looking over at, uh, at verse 26. You know, these are all things that we could apply, could probably apply to any generation, just like you're saying, you know, but I think, they are the things that when we look at them, we say, okay, I know this is all going on around us, but just because all of these things are happening that seem to be the opposite of peaceful <laughs> doesn't mean that Zion can't be built. Because the Lord literally says Zion can be built in these conditions. So we have the whole earth in commotion, men's hearts shall fail them, and they shall say that Christ delayeth his coming until the end of the earth. The love of men shall wax cold, and iniquity shall abound. And when the times of the Gentiles shall come in, a light shall break forth among them, from among them that sit in darkness. And it shall be the fullness of my gospel. But they receive it not, for they perceive not the light, and they turn their hearts from me because of the precepts of men. So this is the whole narrative, right, of the earth being in uh, wickedness or violence or chaos or or whatever we want to call this, and the Lord coming, so to speak, and offering Zion to each generation. And then each generation collectively, not necessarily individually, but collectively rejecting it or saying, not yet. <laughs> As soon as all these other wicked people are dead, then I'll be ready to build Zion. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you know it's funny. There's a story. My my son, I I, I love my son so much. He's uh, he's 14, and he came the other day, and he well, I, I guess it's been more than another day. Man, this whole last year has just gone by so fast. <laughs> but it was last summer actually, and he came over. He really desperately, desperately wanted a, a Nintendo Switch. 
and I desperately did not want to pay for it. <laughs> so we worked at him and I worked at a deal and there were several projects that we had around the house, around the yard that, uh, you know, old projects that I was so busy with work that I just couldn't get to. I was like, okay, listen, make a deal with you. Very, you know, here are all these projects. Here's the dollar amount I'll affix to each one. You just go down the checklist. You do it as soon as you do it. We'll get you paid. And it, it all equaled up from what he had saved up already into what it is. He could go buy himself one. And he could probably do it just within like four hours a day working over like three or four days. It wouldn't be that much at all. Yeah. And, and, and these were very easily and accessible things that he could do. Every day I'd come home from work and I'd say, okay, where's the list? You know, what, what you were able to do? And he's like, oh, I didn't do anything. I'm like, okay, well, that's awesome. He's like, well, you know, let's go do something right now. He's like, nah, it's okay. I, I, I've got other something else going on. I'm like, okay, well, that's awesome. And so then he'd go out and he'd do something else. And, and they were, and they were equally as healthy, beneficial things that he was, he had going on. <laughs> so, and so this went on for about two, three weeks and he never did anything that ever worked towards a switch. But every day he would always come to me. He's like, oh, I just, I really want one. I just really want one. I'm like, well, let's go out and go do something. Apparently not. Anyway, <laughs> apparently not. And, and this is where, you know, I learned that at the end of the day, there's just the things we want. Yeah. And I came to him and, and finally he said it one day, I said, Jonathan, my son's Jonathan. I said, Jonathan, obviously you don't really, really want one. You, you like the idea of it, but you don't really want it. You like thinking about it, but you don't really want it because there's, there's certain things. And he's like, I think you're right. And just that recognition that of, of him saying, I just don't really want it was liberating for him. And he's like, but there are so many other things that I, I really love and desire. And I'm like, you're awesome. Go do those things. I mean, I, I didn't care what he'd like to do. He's fulfilling Yeah, I'm not himself. trying to bind you down on this. <laughs> right. This was a, just an opportunity. You know? <laughs> and, and I think in a lot of ways, God looks at us the exact same way with Zion. I think we can do it. I think we can do it. But I also don't think that the Lord looks at us with condemnation. Right. Of just of like being angry or disappointed. The idea that God is disappointed in us, I think, is one of the most damning, damnable, contemptible ideas that we've ever created as a human species. Because to be disappointed in something means that you had an expectation that was unmet. Right. Right. Exactly. And, and an expectation that was unmet was that you didn't, you thought it was going to be X and it ended up being Y. If God has foreknowledge of all things. He doesn't expect things that don't happen. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't expect things that don't happen, right? Yeah. And so even the potentiality of, of things, he just, th there's nothing there. So if anyone ever has that moment where they feel they have disappointed God, tell that feeling and the voice to go back to hell where it belongs because it's not from God. God does not operate in disappointments because he already knows and the loving patience of God to be able to look at us and to be able to hold us and to be there in that moment in the presence with us. Even when we haven't done anything that in our mind we've qualified for anything, he's there. You know, going here to, uh, you know, track backtracking a little bit in 12 through 14, we have the promise that uh, the saints will end up receiving a, a an inheritance. And he talks about the city of Zion. And I, I love this here when he's talking about the people of Enoch, where it says, and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. 
And man, when I read that, I was like, man, that, that's meekness. That's like the perfect definition of meekness hmm. that we've been talking about, that we've emptied ourselves from all the identities and the attachments and all everything from this earth that, that bind us and that we compare ourselves to and that we, we feel that we're falling behind on. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on this earth. They didn't belong here, but obtained a promise that they should find and see it in their flesh. They should see Zion in their flesh, a place where they did belong. And that place is only found by the meek. And so as we as we move forward, we end up seeing that that God is promising us a place and a refuge. We desperately want that to be a physical place. But as we've talked about before, I really think that God is far, far more trying to get us to come to a place of meekness where we take that starting place of being strangers in a strange land that we don't really fit in anywhere. And as we don't fit in anywhere, suddenly we belong everywhere because there's no place that we don't belong, right? And, and I, I, that's such a powerful place to be in. And, and I wish I could stay in there more like in, in that headspace and that <laughs> heart space myself. It's easy to talk about. It's, it's, harder to, it's harder to stay in that space though. Yeah, I, I see that. And, and I think that that's a, that is a really fascinating thing to pull out of those verses there. Yeah, I'm going to have to think about that a little bit more. I like how he says later when he's talking about Zion, you know, that shall be gathered unto it, you know, from all nations. And, and I like that idea that Zion is where everyone really belongs, right? Like they really have a place there. And so when we get into these later discussions here, later in the section, talking about Zion and, and how it will be perceived in the world, I think it's very interesting. You know, basically the definition of the wicked is those who don't think they belong in Zion. And the definition of Zion is those who think they belong there. <laughs> and wow, that is so interesting, right? Like, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that amazing? I, I, I just, I love that. You know, 16 through, uh, 16 through what? Um, 34. Yeah, 34. This is, yeah, 34. This is, yeah, this is like the proto Joseph Smith Matthew or, or like the, it, it's like the, um, the preview. <laughs> right. <laughs> Joseph is like, hey, I'm translating this. Here's a preview, guys. <laughs> Here's a preview. It's a teaser says, trailer, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Because in verse 16, it says, and, and, and I will show it plainly as I showed unto my disciples when I said, and then he goes on for a bunch of verses until verse 34. So a lot of what we're talking about here is what Jesus was telling his disciples in his day. And part of that in 26 is that you brought up about the wars and rumors of wars. This is what Jesus is telling his disciples, you know, before he, he left them. And then in verse 27, and the love of men shall wax cold and iniquity shall abound. You know, in reality, there are only, there's only one commandment, but one commandment implies two. In reality, there's only the one commandment that we love God with all of our heart, might, mind, and strength. But the second it's likened to it, it's an extrapolation of the first that we love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. You know, in 1 John 4, it teaches us that we love because God loved us first. God was the one that demonstrated that, that awoken that love within us and that awareness of love within us, that brought us into that conversation. It brought us into the awareness and the experience of this love, of this, of this grace, of this, you didn't deserve it and I don't love you because you qualified for it. I love you because that is who and what I am. Now, we live in a world where the love of men shall wax cold. 
you know, I, I graduated from BYU with a, f- a degree in philosophy and going into, going into BYU, I, I was a political science major up front. I wanted to study government and man, I was miserable. I was, <laughs> I was a miserable political science uh, student and I was like, man, this is, this, this is crap. And, and my, my wife, bless her heart. I came home one day from school and I, there were some classes in geography that I was taking. I have, I had two majors, one in uh, philosophy and the second, and the second in uh, geography, but I was taking some geography classes in my, my second semester. And she's like, Shiloh, you are so happy when you come back from your geography classes and you're a miserable <laughs> person. When you're coming back from your political science classes. She goes, listen, this is what's going to happen. You can graduate in political science if you want to, but I'm going to go and I will come back when you're done with your degree. <laughs> because, she goes, because I don't want to be here for another three years while you're this miserable. <laughs> and uh, and bless her, she was completely joking. But, th- you know, that really got me into, uh, into, into philosophy. And to come to find out that political science is the what of government and the how of government. It's what government is and how it functions. Philosophy, though, talks about the why. And why is a question I love. I love studying the why. The how and the what, not so much. I know some people love the how and the what. That's just not me. And so philosophy, I studied political philosophy, had some amazing professors at BYU and who, who, I, who I love dearly. And in fact, I was just talking about one of my professors um, there at BYU in philosophy last night to my wife um, because of the impact he made on my life. And one of the things that I ended up, my very last semester, I read Elder Maxwell's Enoch Letters. And if anybody hasn't read the Enoch Letters, I highly, highly suggest it. I think just over 100 pages, you could read it on a single sitting on a Sunday afternoon. But it revolutionized and changed my life. Without getting too far into it, I recognized and realized that the political philosophy that I had been reading for the last four years at BYU... And I'd studied all the greatest minds, everything from Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, all the way down to current polit- political theolog- or political philosophers. That political philosophy begins the minute where a society of individuals have chosen not to love God with all their heart, might, mind, and strength, and not to love their neighbor as themselves. It's in that moment when all political philosophy begins. It's in that moment when we as a nation of individuals construct and create systems of, and that's when man creates his governments, whether or not the constitutional republic, whether or not a monarchy, an oligarchy, whatever form of government man wants to create. The causal mechanism for creating man's governments begin in a vacuum where you have a society of individuals who have no who no longer keep the forefront, the love of God and the love of their neighbors themselves. Because you can look at all the laws and all the forms and all the protections, the, the whole balance of powers, the whole, the, you know, the whole system of government that we have of checks and balances, all presuppose that we don't love God and we don't love our neighbor as much as ourselves. We have checks and balances because we assume we don't love God and we don't love our neighbor as much as ourselves. And so when we read here that the love of men shall wax cold and iniquity shall abound, this is telling me that we have a society that we, that we live in right now. What would be different if we truly, truly, completely loved our neighbor as much as we loved, that we valued their life, their happiness, and who they were as much as we valued our own? What would that, what would that revolutionize just in our own communities? You know, talk about Zion right here and right now in our own home. Ben, didn't you have a quote? I thought you had a quote from, uh, about Zion in our homes. Yeah, so this kind of goes along where with the the statement where he talks later about Satan being bound. What what verse is that? 
That is on the next page. That's the the right page. That's verse 55. Okay, so 55 is Satan shall be bound that he shall have no place in the hearts of the children of men. Okay, so I had just read this. I had underlined it. I was thinking about it. I'd written down some of my thoughts on it. I was thinking about how nothing really binds Satan more than accepting the grace of God and enduring to the end. And we talked in an earlier podcast about the definition of enduring, and I really liked it because there's the connotation in enduring of it's not yielding and it's also not resisting. So like you're withstanding something, but you're not yielding to it and you're not resisting either. And so anyway, I was thinking about how enduring the accusations of Satan and uh, living in the grace of God, you know, does that's how we bind him. But uh, someone in a in a group, not someone, Ryan Christensen posted a quote from Spencer W. Kimball. And it's funny because I had written down this stuff and I was thinking about it and and we were getting ready for the podcast and and I pulled up a page and boom, there was this quote. <laughs> it's like, oh, this goes really well. It says, when Satan is bound in a single home, when Satan is bound in a single life, the millennium has already begun in that home, in that life. So anyway, that's, that's Spencer W. Kimball. And I, so I was just thinking about that concept of how could we as individuals bind Satan in our lives? And how could we then make sure he's bound in our homes? And I think one of the most important ways that could happen is getting rid of that accusation, right? Yeah. That we don't let him accuse us, not in a a resisting type of way, not in like a prideful, boastful way that we're saying, you know, that we're, we're something you know that we're prideful but not uh, not giving into it not yielding to that type of accusation and then never heaping that accusation on another yeah I, and I, I t- this should go without saying because we've talked about this so much but just for another clarity's sake you know we've talked about over and over again this whole all, always already worthy and the true self and the false self and we've talked about the accusing voice within ourselves but then, you know, some pushback comes in. It was like, okay, well, what about our conscience? That thing which pricks our conscience and tells us that we did something wrong and we feel bad about and the guilty conscience that we have. And there's been so much talked about and written about this. And a lot of the conscience, though, is just shame and guilt. It's just not the way that God works because God inspires through love and compassion and mercy. When I've seen and I've talked with other people who have truly experienced this love of God, they recognize the whole already always be worthy and they start to have experiences with this. Because a prideful person who will listen to this, like myself, I, mean, I myself regularly, you know, they'll come in and say, well, I have nothing to repent of. I've done nothing wrong. I'm always already worthy. And like, <laughs> like, that's not what, it that's is. not what we're talking about. <laughs> because yeah. coming into an awareness of the always already worthy is coming into the moment of awe and of wonder in the love and grace of God. The, the, in that experiential moment of coming into the presence and the love and the awe of God, in seeing God in the other, in emptying ourselves, and in, and in coming to God with just an emptied soul, that he fills with his wonder and awe. Just like Enoch. You know, he comes in and, and, and we've talked about Enoch before. Not Enoch, but I'm talking about uh, Enos. Enos, yeah. When Enos comes in and he prays out to God and God 
he, you know, his soul hungered. He had emptied out his soul to God. He'd emptied all of the identities that he'd been carrying with him and the sins he'd been carrying with him. And he comes to God and God fills him with this love. And Enoch says, God, how, how is this done? Because it's in that moment when you experience the awe and wonder and grace of God where you can't even comprehend like what this is. I did not deserve this. And yet I am filled with goodness. What happened? How is this even possible? That's what we're talking about. That's what it is. And so, you know, when, when we come in here, I, I love that there are several stories here. And going back to verses uh, 30, uh, 34 through 38, because now we're bringing in the fig tree analogy again. You know, Jesus mm-hmm. comes in here and he's talking about this fig tree that he's coming in. And he's basically taking the fruit again, and then they're going to burn up everything else. You know, J- very Jacob 5 in the Book of Mormon and the story of the and the, uh, the the trees there. And we've talked about the ash. We've talked about the burning and the and things that they understood about these allegories that were not written down, but were understood. You never let ash go to waste. You always take in everything and you reincorporate it back into the soil, back into the, the fuller soap. The fuller soap is what creates the, the, the ability of bleaching and making things white and clean. And everything is put to use for God's purpose. All of us have a purpose. Even those who we think are burned, it's not a destruction of the self into punishment. It's a destruction of the false self into being reincorporated into God's plan because God has a plan with every single one of his children. You know, I liked the restatement of that parable there of the fig tree because in this context, when we're reading about the saints and and anticipating his second coming in Zion, I thought about, I, I really liked this very simple analogy. You know, you see the fig tree and it puts these little leaves out and you know it's coming. And I thought that is such a subtle beautiful way of the Lord announcing himself, right? Through this creation and 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 how it what it teaches us about Zion. When we start seeing these little things around us, when we start seeing people actually behaving in a Zion-like way around us, we can start to see, oh look, that's a little that's a little fig leaf coming out of the tree there, right? I see these buds. There is potential here. There is goodness in the world that could become, that could become Zion. Do I want to be part of that? And so I I, I like that there because it's this very subtle thing that you see on the tree and, and it's really what is it that we're looking for in the world? You know, we, we see what we look for so much. I, I don't think I was going anywhere else with that. Just the fact that we can see evidence if we want to, that, that Zion could be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm going to put that in my notes right here real fast. You know, in verse 33, going back a few verses, we don't talk about it quite as much as we did with the Book of Mormon. There's There's been other things with the church narrative. And you and I talked about this when, after we were done with the Book of Mormon, we realized that church history and Doctrine and Covenants was going to be a little bit more difficult because when we started this uh, this project with the Book of Mormon, it was really easy for us to kind of pull out these peace narratives, 
out of the Book of Mormon because of it, the Book of Mormon is a narrative in itself. Follow a story, and you have characters that are developed and everything. Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah it incorporates its own narrative and the and the doctrine together into one into one story. But the doctrine and covenants, you kind of got to incorporate an, an external history into the into what they're talking about, and then contextualize everything and. And it's just, it's a different experience of talking about God this way. But what I love here in verse 33 is, you know, this is where all of a sudden this peace narrative, you know, because, you know, this is Latter-day Peace Studies, come follow me. These peace narratives start coming back into play. And there shall be earthquakes in diverse places and many desolations, yet men will harden their hearts against me, and they will take up the sword one against another, and they will kill one another. And I'm like, yeah, that's what's, that's what's going on. Hmm. Nations lift up sword against nation, gun against gun, power against power. Whoever has the most power is the one who is in control. And that's how we view the world. That's how the, that's how man views power. That's what, when Satan took Christ up to the mountain and he looked over all the kingdoms of the earth, that was the power he was giving Christ. I'll make you the superpower. I will make you the superpower. You, you, you will be the one in charge, and by you being in charge, you will be able to then make sure that nobody does anything. When you're the most powerful, you can control anything to be the way you want to be. Then we shall have peace. Yeah. <laughs> but Christ took the meek approach and realized that by emptying, he inherited the earth. And so it flips that script on its head. And we're going to find out more about that. We're going to bring the narrative of the sword back in in just a little bit. But I love in verse 44 just on the other column. And then they shall look for me, and behold, I will come. And they shall see me in the clouds of heaven, clothed with power and great glory, and all the holy angels, and he that watches not for me shall be cut off. Again, so much in this verse, we have this whole, the clouds of heaven. You know, and, the, and we've talked about clouds before in this allegory, you know, the cloud when, when the Israelites followed the cloud and the Jaredites followed the cloud. This is where we start to see a God that is not fully fully formed, a, a fully understood, fully comprehended, f- fully embodied. Articulated. Yeah. 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 Articulated. That's a great word. You said that before. And I, and, and <laughs> you know, we were talking about this before. I'm going to put that right there. Articulate. Okay. Fully articulated or fully conceptualized. Yeah. yeah. Articulated. And what happens is in both of the Israelite and the Jaredite narratives, they followed the cloud into the wilderness, the wilderness symbolic of those places in our lives, those journeys that we take in our lives where we've never been before. Those moments in our lives where this is completely brand new. I'm following this thing about God. I really don't know if it's going to work out right, but we just keep on taking steps of faith until finally in both of these stories, they end up, Moses and the brother of Jared end up seeing the face of God. They see the embodied God. And I, I love that because glory here, this is also, we haven't brought it up yet, but there are multiple times in this section, it refers to glory again. And we brought it up a bunch of times from Alma 20, or from Alma chapter 9 in verse uh, 20, I'm looking it up right now, 26. And not many days hence, the Son of God shall come in his glory. Now, this is talking about his first coming, but it says that he's going to come in his glory in the first coming. And we don't, we don't typically think of that as we brought this story up before a little baby born in a manger. That's not really the glory we think about, but he comes in his glory and the glory is that of the only begotten of the father. And here's the glory, grace, equity, truth, patience, mercy, long suffering, and quick to hear the cries of his people and to answer their prayers. Ben, if we bring this scripture up in every single episode, I'd be completely (laughs) happy because this, this is the glory of God. 
Whenever I see gl- the glory of God mentioned, we we've, I think we've really got to put away this idea of God coming in this, you know, the, the magnificent clouds and start looking at this far more allegorically. He's going to come as a God that we don't fully comprehend and articulate yet. But yet this God is going to be one that we find as we emulate that glory and come into that glory when we are full of grace ourselves, of equity and truth, and when we have patience and we have mercy for each other, when we suffer long with each other, that we endure the the buffetings and the revilings and everything, that we suffer for each other, their attacks against us, and we don't revile evil for evil, but we give back the good for the evil. And we, like God, will hear the cries of the other, and we will mourn with those that mourn, and we will suffer with those who suffer. And in that, we find that we see the face of God in the other. And so coupling that with that quote that you just had from President Kimball, we can actualize Zion in our lives right now. We can enter the millennial realm ourselves right now. It's possible for us. It's just a choice. Do we really want it? And if we don't, guess what? There's no guilt. There's no, there's no, there's no, uh, you know, just like Jesus says to the woman, he's like, where's your accuser? And I think in my life, I don't think I know in my life, the majority of my life, I have been the accuser of however many people have not wanted to build Zion, myself included. I've not lived my life that way. And I've beaten myself up for it. I've ridiculed others for it. And it's taken a lot in, in to even still to come to the place of not standing as the, as the accuser, but to recognize a loving God who is always there with us and is always there suffering with us. And it changes the narrative and it allows so much more freedom to be able to then have a reliance on the compassion and mercy of God to take the next step towards that when, when finally you choose that that's what we want to have in our lives. I like the contrast there in verse 44 of the beginning and the end. You know, they, they shall look for me and behold, I will come. You know, and it says basically, if you're looking for him, you'll see him. And then at the end, he that watches not for me shall be cut off. You know, we could talk about that first cut off or the, the phrase cut off there. I, I think that could be interpreted in multiple ways. But the, con- the, the real message here, I think, being that we see what we look for, right? And, and I like that you brought in, you know, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. It's, <clears throat> it's when we are pure in heart and looking for God that we see him. And when we're not looking for that, um, we don't see it. Right. It's not that it's not the epistemic reality that we live in. I think that that's brought out in that verse really well there. Yeah, I think so too. And going down two verses, wherefore, if ye have slept in peace, blessed are you. For I am now behold, for as you now behold me and know that I am, even so shall ye come unto me, and your soul shall live, and your redemption be be perfected. I love this, this blessedness and this peacefulness all over again. If you've slept in your peace, in this peace, aren't you blessed? Aren't you just as I am? And now that you know who I am, also because you're at peace and you know that I'm at peace, and you now know me, and you've been into this conversation with me, 
Then shall the arm of the Lord fall upon the nations. This is an interesting verse to follow the peace of the Lord. <laughs> to all of a sudden mm-hmm. have this, this, this seeming, you know, hammer come down from heaven. But it's mm-hmm. not like that. And then the Lord shall set his foot upon the mountain and shall cleave in twain and the earth shall tremble and reel to and fro and the heavens also shall shake. And the Lord shall utter his voice and all the ends of the earth shall hear it and the nations of the earth shall mourn. And they that have laughed shall see their folly. You know, we talked about in Ether 12 when Moroni had lamented about how God had made made uh, the brother of Jared powerful in writing, but not Moroni. He said that the people who are going to read my record, Moroni lamented, because I'm not powerful at writing. God, you haven't made me powerful in writing. And when people are going to read what I wrote, they're going to laugh at me. And the Lord says, you know, fools mock, but they shall mourn. And my grace is sufficient that if they humble themselves, then, then I will make weak things strong unto them. But I love the way the Lord responds to this. Fools mock, but they shall mourn. As if to tell him, listen, Moroni, I know that you can't see those who mock you that I've got them too, that I'm here for them as much as I'm here for you. And they may mock you now, but at one point they're going to mourn. They're going to empty, and I'm going to take care of them. And I'm going to do that in as much as, as they let it go. And I'm going to be there for them as much as I'm there for them. Almost this whole that we talked about, you be Moroni and you let me be God. And so when I see this here that the nations shall mourn, you know, when, when it says that the sins will be answered, will be shouted from, shouted from the rooftop. We often think about this in terms of finally the, the things done in the dark and the wicked are going to finally get their comeuppance, right? The wicked are finally going to get theirs. Yeah. No, no. You know, we're, we are a church that we believe in, in doing things by proxy. And how great and merciful our God who would be able to speak the trauma of sin by proxy. Those things that we hide in the dark for our shame, because the accusing voice keeps us in shame and in darkness, God will use proxy, and he will bring that trauma out into the open. And once it's in the open, there is no more of us having to hide in shame. You know, the natural man looks at this and says, ah, the the wicked finally get theirs. And God finally says, I finally have the moment to be able to redeem my people so you don't have to be in shame anymore. Hmm. When we really understand the mercy of our God, it really changes the nature of the scripture we read to realize this has been his plan from the beginning. And we've made a good mess of it, but he's always been patient. He's always been long-suffering and kind and gentle and so full of love, the depths of which it just we can't even comprehend. So all of these um, are referencing quite a few Old Testament and New Testament prophecies here. There's quite a bit being hybridized and brought into to one place here, which is indicative of Joseph Smith. You know, this is this is really goes along with his his personality, his calling, his you know religious upbringing and and view of things. So we get into the Zechariah stuff, uh, these verses from Zechariah that are so like, oh, they'll just you know, stab you right in the heart. So <laughs> 52, then shall they know that I am the Lord for I shall say unto them, <clears throat> oh, so I started off at the wrong spot. <laughs> Verse 51, and then shall the Jews look upon me and say, what are these wounds in thine hands and in thy feet? 
Then shall they know that I am the Lord, for I shall say unto them, These wounds are the wounds with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. I am he who was lifted up. I am Jesus Christ that was crucified. I am the Son of God. And then shall they weep because of their iniquities. Then shall they lament because they persecuted their king. And then shall the heathen nations be redeemed. And they that knew no law shall have part in the first resurrection, and it shall be tolerable for them. So Christ comes down and he says, here I am. And they say, who are you? What is, what's this? And he says, I'm Christ. I'm your redeemer. I'm the one you killed. And they'll realize everything of what happened, what they did. And then he'll redeem them just like that. Because they will instantly have repented and come to know who God is. That no matter what they tried to do to him, he still would condescend in mercy to them and come to them to show them who he is. And in that moment, they'll have repentance. Now, Ben, you looked up before we started to record about uh, the heathen. Yeah, so heathen has a lot of baggage to it, right? It's It's been used over the centuries to just basically mean anybody who doesn't believe what I believe, Right. But really, in getting down to it, it's it's was used primarily to indicate anyone who didn't know the true God. Okay, so anyone who didn't know and worship the true God. So in the context of repentance, we're all heathens <laughs> because we don't all know God as well as he would like us to or as well as we could. So that we're constantly coming out of our heathenness, right? <laughs> Heathenity? What is it? <laughs> <laughs> and and repenting and coming to know God. And so, really, in in uh, the the basic sense of the word, um, that's that's what it is. But then all this baggage gets put on it because of how it's been used in a derogatory in a derogatory way over the centuries. But again, really, all it meant was just those who don't know the true God. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? You know, this this talks about it in context of, of the Jews that killed Christ. But if you're going to take a group of, you know, two, three hundred people, that, that doesn't have a lot of application to the billions of others that live. But when you really realize that he's talking to the heathen, and when he's talking of those who crucified him, you know, that's, you know, that's something that we crucify Christ in our heart. And we do that against ourselves. You know, mm. when we take upon ourselves the name of Christ and when, and when Christ is the archetype of our humanity and when we, we, we sin and, and we do that, it, 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 it denies that within ourselves. It crucifies that within ourselves. And we turn away from the loving kindness and the, and the loving trust that Christ is our advocate with the Father. And yet he's there and then shall the heathen, us, everyone, the heathen nations, be redeemed. Oh, it's just good stuff. Yeah, whether this is predicting like a specific future event or not, I mean, it may be, and what I wouldn't give to like be there and see the whole thing. <laughs> but even even if it is, it's also metaphorical of our own personal and quite frankly, humanity's collective experience here. And so it, it may very well be that this is talking about a specific event that 
is going to happen it, exactly how it's laid out here and and, and literally right but um it it also is at least something that that is going to happen metaphorically to us individually that happens to us metaphorically individually and collectively as humanity yeah you know, in verse fifty-five, coming up next, we've already covered that with Satan being bound. He's bound. The that accusing voice will no longer be there. The love of God will abound. Man, that's just. Uh, look forward to that in my. I, I, and this things. These are things we can cultivate in our own lives right now. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I still even have to fight against the temptation of passing this off to some some day when oh that i would have lived in the days you know two three four hundred five hundred whenever christ comes i could have lived in that well the fact is is i can create that right now you know that's that's really the message of the sermon on the mount that's really the message of of the incarnate christ the god coming down to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth that we can live this now and here in verse 57 you know this is the 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 burning and the fire that i brought up earlier with the, like when we talked about the fig tree for they that are wise and have received the truth and have taken the holy ghost for their guide and have not been deceived verily i say unto you they shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire but shall abide the day and the earth shall be given unto them for an inheritance okay so there's the meek and they shall multiply and wax strong and their children shall grow up without sin unto salvation so their their children aren't going to look beyond the mark. Their children aren't going to miss this. Their children aren't going to be in this in this role of of accusation that we live in. And I love that they will not be cast into the fire, but they shall abide the day. But those who are cast into the fire shall be reincorporated back into the into the story and into God's story. And fifty nine for the Lord shall be in their midst, and His glory shall be upon them. And he will be their king and their lawgiver. Well, when Christ came as the lawgiver, as the new Moses, that was the Sermon on the Mount. That was the law. Matthew 5 through 7 was the law. That's the new law that they will be living under. So when we have the glory of God, and that glory is that grace and mercy and equity and truth and and long-suffering and quick to hear and to mourn with each other and to hear the cries of our people, that's all the Sermon on the Mount. And this begins to make a lot of sense because when we come here to the, the final verses and the Lord says, for verily I say unto you that great things, great things await you. <laughs> like, yeah, this has been a really awesome section. There, there's a lot of reasons to rejoice in section 45. This is, as I said, this is one of my favorite. Ye hear of wars in foreign lands, but behold, I say unto you, they are not even at your doors and not many years hence you shall hear of wars in your own lands. I'm like, all right, well, what are you going to do about that? But then he, the Lord says he's going to gather his people, and it shall be called the New Jerusalem, a land of peace, a city of refuge, a place of safety for the saints of the Most High God. And the glory of the Lord, there's glory again, the glory of the Lord shall be there, and the terror of the Lord also shall be there, inasmuch as the wicked will not come into it, and it shall be called Zion. And this goes back to what you've said, Ben, over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to keep on saying it over and over and over again. But the terror of the Lord really comes from those who have not repented to see him differently. They still see the wrathful, vengeful God. They will not come up to Zion because they feel the, they, they feel that accusing voice within them. That's how they're listening to Satan more than they're listening to God because they're listening to the accusing voice within them and they don't actually hear the voice of God that's calling them that they belong there to begin with. Right. And it shall come to pass that among the wicked that every man, 
that will not take up his sword against his neighbor must flee to Zion for safety. And there shall be gathered unto it out of every nation under heaven, and it shall be the only people that shall not be at war one with another. And it shall be said among the wicked, Let us not go up to battle against Zion, for the inhabitants of Zion are terrible, wherefore we cannot stand. This isn't because Zion has the armaments and the celestial tools of destruction to kill them. It's because the power of righteousness is so great, but that those who will not see the mercy of God will not come into a God who has always loved them. The wicked, you know, when when the Lord disarmed Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, after he had cut off the servant's ear, and he said, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. I believe it was Tertullian, maybe an origin, but I think it was Tertullian who said that it's in that in, in disarming Peter, the Lord disarmed all of us. We live in a life of fear of each other. We don't love God and we don't love our neighbor as ourself. If we truly loved our neighbor as much as we loved ourselves, many things would change in how we viewed them and in how we defend ourselves and protect ourselves and hedge our way against our neighbors before they have a chance of harming us. But in Zion, it's a land of peace and of refuge and of safety, not because it's destructive, but because of God's love. You know, I can't help but keep going back in my mind to all the description in the Book of Alma of the people of Ammon, of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, that that is just like... You know, this is all in the abstract describing Zion, but then like that is the actual story of the people that decided they were going to live it, and they did. Let us not go up to battle against Zion, for the inhabitants of Zion are terrible, wherefore we cannot stand. <laughs> what happened when the Lamanites went there to battle? More were fell down on their knees and were converted than died. I'd, that that's an interesting statement there for me. I I don't even I I don't know that that's at all what the scripture necessarily intended, but that's the imagery that comes to my mind. We cannot stand, you know. We'll we'll be brought to our knees because we won't be able to withstand their love. It concludes in seventy one, and it shall come to pass that the righteous shall be gathered out from among all nations and shall come to Zion singing with songs of everlasting joy. Now I say unto you, keep these things from going abroad into the world until it is expedient in me that ye may accomplish this work in the eyes of the people and the eyes of thine enemy, that they may not know your works until ye have accomplished the thing which I have commanded you, that when they shall know it, they, they will consider these things. For when the Lord shall appear, he shall be terrible unto them, that fear may seize upon them, and they will stand afar off and tremble, and all nations shall be afraid because of the terror of the Lord and the power of his might." You know, the glory of God is his grace and his equity, his truth, his love, and his long-suffering. And those ideals to the nations of the world and to the way that we do things are cast aside as ideological weaknesses. I've lost count the number of times when I, I've, I've talked about nonviolence or of, of pacifism. And for those who really understand the implications of it and who, who really disagree with it, they really understand how dangerous it is to the way that man, that mankind operates, the way governments operate and the way that we structure and the way that we see things. And it really is a powerful ideal. And we begin to see here how powerful God's grace and love truly are. Unseen, 
unknown and certainly not uh, readily experienced and commonly experienced, consciously anyway, by many, we don't truly grasp the importance and the power of, of God's love and grace. But once we allow ourselves and we step into that and we look for those moments and those experiences of being in the wonder and the awe of God, it really does. As, as you said, Ben, it brings us to our knees. It's brought me to my own knees. I don't have anything to add to that. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. We are at the end of Section 45. <laughs> we look forward to being with you next week. We'll be going into Section 46 and I think 47 together. I haven't taken, taken quite a look uh, look yet, but I think that, yeah, we'll cover a couple of sections there and, and uh, go for there. Sufficient is the day into the evil day. <laughs> it, don't run faster than I can walk. I get it. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. And until then, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thanks for listening.